This evening, this uh, talk for the record is 68 years in the making. Uh, to ease into this evening's subject matter to talk a little numer numerology. <clears throat> so we're at the, almost at midnight, we'll be at the 96 hour mark of our retreat together. Four full days. <clears throat> we arrived on Friday, but Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. I had to figure that all out. And then I figured, oh, we have 96 more hours through Saturday till midnight. So we're kind of at the middle. And I, well, we're going till probably around noon, I think, on Sunday. So that's another 12. So that's 108 hours. So well, that's kind of cool. 108, you know, mala beads. There's supposed to be something in the number 108 that uh, is uh, put on mala beads in the Eastern tradition, <clears throat> maybe elsewhere as well. Uh, this evening, a uh, subject of the third precept is a very uh, profound as the other precepts in its all of its implications, and it's important to uh, kind of establish some groundwork for this and ground rules for myself if nobody else. When I uh, came up with this theme of UPS unpacking the sila before I arrived and talked with Ajahn Amaro, I kind of thought to myself, well, if we do the five precepts, one of us is going to get three and the other is going to get two. Kind of if we did, you know, every other night kind of thing. And I thought, well, you know what, I'd really, I think the first one would be appropriate for me because of my veterans experience and killing and stuff. And, you know, it didn't take me long to realize that, you know, I went one, three, five. So then I kind of landed on the third one. But I didn't, I didn't say anything. I just kind of let it be. And I was going to, you know, because I, I really, I wanted this evening, you know, in all honesty. And the first. Well, all of them for that matter. <laughs> I have to share it with you. But we were going to start Saturday night, and then he said, well, tonight maybe we'll have just a general you know, discussion for Saturday night, which was a more of a kind of laying the groundwork for the retreat. And then, and then you take tomorrow night. So it was then set in stone as long as I keep continuing to live and breathe and be here with you. So here I am. The... Uh, you know, theme of the third precept to uh, refrain uh, from uh, any, or uh, undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. And I've always found this uh, fascinating subject matter for various reasons, but that uh, to uh, get clarity of what this actually means uh, is a, I believe, like the other precepts, requires you and I to really dig more deeply into this subject and uh, for a deeper uh, understanding. So this evening, like the first precept uh, that I uh, talked about, I have a, uh, been doing a little bit of reading, uh, having some exchanges, good exchanges with Ajahn Amaro, and I'm amazed in the last just 24 hours or less, some real shifts in, in my understanding through some things that I'd ever had really heard before, which I find exciting because it kind of throws another mix into it for me and forces me, if you will, to not like be formulaic or just, you know, this is what I'll talk about and I won't talk about that and, and whatever. On some very, and in many ways, uh, reassuring things around what the third precept means. And I remember years ago, uh, probably when I was at Harnam, that people would uh, come to me, a celibate monk, and want to know about the third precept. And I, I don't know if I ever actually said it to anybody. I said, why are you coming to a celibate monk? 
to ask how you should live your sex life, <laughs> which is totally reasonable, right? <laughs> so, um, but maybe it's important to start with a few disclaimers. And in all honesty and, and seriousness, because of the of the subject matter, and I wish to really, uh, I kind of say it's it's like I was thinking, what is the image? And it's like, it's more than a you know a, a puzzle. It's like there's these pieces of my life that are very uh, significant to me around this precept and various events in my life that are interrelated, and. So my my job this evening, like on Monday was or on Sunday evening, is to see if I can fit these pieces together in a way that is meaningful, without being uh, in any way uh, disrespectful to anyone or to uh, uh, step on anybody's uh, particular uh, uh, orientation, if you will, towards uh, their own sexuality, sexual preference, and so on. And so with that, I, uh, what I express this evening is entirely my own view, my own experience. I don't speak for anybody else. Uh, and I will speak about my monastic life in some candor, feels appropriate. And so remember and bear in mind, this is my monastic experience. I'm not talking about, you know, Ajahn Amaro, Lumpa Cha, or Lumpa Cha, or Lumpa Sumedha, or any uh, monastic uh, that is here present, or... Uh, Let's just kind of open all anyone that's past, present, or will be in the future. So it's entirely, I take full responsibility and ownership for, for uh, the context of what I'm saying. So to begin, you know, one, one final thing with that, and it is because uh, sexuality and expression of one's sexuality has been so... Um, open up out of the closet, as they say, coming people coming out of the closet, which is kind of a odd expression, isn't it? But if we look through history that people aren't coming out of the closet, they've been giving more permission to actually express themselves, their own feelings, uh, their particular uh, preferences, and so on. And so if I uh, do tread on anything that's offensive, I don't do it intentionally or as, as a judgment. I intend no judgment on a, anybody, whatever your particular relation is to your own sexuality and your own sexual practices, manifestation, uh, what have you. And so I ask for your forgiveness. It's certainly not my intention uh, to do anything of this sort. And that's why I think the intention is to you know, talk from a more personal perspective. When uh, I mentioned Sunday evening about having a, a sense of my own uh, not wanting to hurt or harm any uh, living creature, or and another part, of it, I was really afraid of pain as well, not only hurting, but being hurt. So I didn't have that, like, you know, some people have that, that kind of aggression to they don't care about being hurt they just want to you know lash out and and be something and and I don't think this is uh, unusual in regard to uh, sexuality that I was certainly aware of my uh, own sexuality and pleasure through uh, you know my private parts genitals if you will and there is a, so this is nothing, I think, new or kind of revelation that we have from a young age. We have a curiosity, we have a, uh, uh, an awareness, and of course, as uh, little children, we play, we tease, we whatever, and it's all very innocent um, at, a, at a young age. And of course, there is an innocence with uh, that young age. And there was a point in my life at not a very old age, uh, the best I can make out and recall is five or six, that I was, uh, uh, became a, uh, a prey for a predator, a sexual predator. And I say this not to kind of wear my heart on my sleeve, but because of the journey that I've been on, 
that I feel it's important to share this, not in you know graphic detail or anything like that, but how the impact of such of something like this has a a, a strong uh, influence on uh, how one moves into the future, one's own relation. So you could say that that sexual uh, development is arrested or assaulted or in, in some way um, distorted because uh, uh, this is, uh, it's, it's inappropriate, it's a violation, and it is predatory. And it's pretty horrendous for, for most people. And so I can't speak about you know, women, I can only speak about myself as, as a man, as a young boy. And it took me a lot of years to piece this together in my own life, not only to piece it together, but to realize that a lot of my uh, expression, my uh, time as a monk and celibacy, but also the expression of my own sexuality uh, had a certain distortion that I never really realized until years later. So that's why I kind of say it's a 60 year, 68 years in the making what I'm sharing this evening. So let me jump forward to the the next, so I grew up with, uh, in fact, and this man was a family friend, wasn't a relative or anything like that. But interestingly, he was Catholic and took me to church with him sometimes. And my father was Catholic, not a practicing Catholic, but uh, he was a, uh, uh, he certainly had some of the uh, uh, principles uh, embedded into his own view of the world and his uh, and his view of of uh, uh, sex and expression of sexuality. So we all know about the the birds and the bees talk that we're supposed to get at a certain age, and I'm not sure how it was for you. And I think it's awkward for the best of parents, and how each parent handles it is probably a great challenge. I haven't been a parent, so I don't know. But mine was kind of short and not all that sweet. I was in high school, so this is post uh, the uh, you know predatory abuse in in my personal life. As best I recall, I was probably seventeen years old, high school, and I was driving with my dad. We were he was taking me to school. Where we were going somewhere, and we come to a stoplight, and I remember the place. I can visualize it in my mind exactly where it is, where I grew up in in Seattle, Washington. And we're at a stoplight, brakes on, and I don't even know if he turned to me. And he says, well, I just wanted to let you know that, uh, you know, if you're going to be sexually, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact words, but the long and short was this. He said, well, he says, if, if, if you're going to have sex, he says, I want you to hang out with the bad girls, not the good girls. <laughs> right? So that was very clear. Bad girls, not good girls. And the second, if you need condoms, you let me know. I'll get your condoms for you. Drive off. <laughs> and bless his heart, he was struggling, did the best he could, but as far as he was concerned, I had my birds and the bees talk. Meanwhile, back at home, no. So, and my mother wasn't really involved in any of that. She had my sister to deal with. So life goes on, and uh, you know, I, I have my first really meaningful relationship, someone that I cared for very deeply before Vietnam. And you know, I had a full relationship with the expression of our uh, fondness for each other and the intimacy. And then she met someone else when I was, I can't remember, maybe just before Vietnam or at Vietnam. So a, a, you know, kind of a heartbreak, a very uh, a deep kind of, uh, felt like a betrayal, but she was honest. She didn't just like leave. She you know, told me what had happened and everything. And so she was very sweet and honest, but these things are never easy, are they, when we have to part ways. And so I had my experience in uh, Vietnam, 
And uh, then uh, what uh, happened in Vietnam, I've already shared some of that, this uh, profound impression on my life and on my, uh, my uh, sense of wanting to find more meaning in my life uh, manifested quite uh, strongly. And so I uh, began to study uh, Buddhism, Buddhist books, and I'm not sure, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but I spent a period of time training myself to go back to Thailand to become a monk. So I kept usually the, the eight precepts, you know, included celibacy. I wasn't seeing anybody or being sexually active. And there was only, I think, one person that I met that there was a, you know, there was a chemistry, a fondness there, but, you know, my my path was going in a, in a different way. And so I was you know, restrained and knew that I was uh, basically leaving and going to, uh, to Thailand uh, to become a monk. Now each as a, as, as a uh, the choice that, you know, I make and every uh, monastic makes and in all orders of, of uh, celibacy, uh, the uh, uh, relinquishing of sexual expression, any kind of sexual conduct is a big one. And certainly in Buddhism, that it's a uh, there's so much misunderstanding around uh, celibacy and what that is. But what I found is not only a personal struggle with uh, with containing that energy and working with it and struggling with it uh, is a big challenge, but also have a bit of light in that is that I saw that. You know, sexual energy is 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 just that. It's it's energy, and although it's a very powerful energy, that with devotion and practice, that that energy, if we take the chakras, it's kind of like base baseline. Uh, you know, from our uh, chakra of just uh, flight or fight, and procreation, or or you know, copulating to procreate, and as we go higher in the chakras, we're lifting that energy up more and more. And I think devotion, the expression of devotion, is a very lovely way of expressing that. And uh, I certainly felt that. I wouldn't have been able to uh, stay for 20 years without it. So it wasn't all um, you know, pain and suffering and you know, just kind of grinning my teeth and bear it. And you read about every uh, great teacher, certainly Ajahn Chah was no exception, that this was a, you know, a, a significant struggle for him, had his own demons around it. And interestingly, he never, as the story is, is told, I don't remember ever talking to him, hearing it personally, I may have, um, but he, uh, he was a novice monk, and then I think he disrobed for a short time, and I, maybe one of the disrobings that may not be totally accurate was, well, before I become a monk, maybe I'll you know, test the waters. And I think maybe him and some mates were going to go to a local brothel or something in the end. I don't know if he chickened out or he just like, nah, I can't really do this. He so then he... What's that? He went for Chinese noodles instead. Oh, he went for... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ajay. <laughs> Probably... Less messy and easier to deal with, huh? <laughs> and so he went forward into into monastic life and, and never looked back. And just pausing for a moment that, you know, all of us have to have great admiration for something like that because of the the just the the not just willpower but the the depth of devotion to do that in one's life and make a commitment and not look back. And uh, so such was his, his life and to his, uh, his dying day. But he was a very clever fellow, and he was certainly not foolish in such matters. And there's a lot of things that are not you know, appropriate maybe here to share. I will share some things, but he could be very uh, graphic, really, in some of his uh, expressions. And so obviously... It sometimes was surprising that he, you know, hadn't ever expressed his sexuality, but he certainly had a uh, a good understanding. And of course, if you're a rice farmer, um, we look at uh, you know familiar with animals and and uh, 
animals, um, you know, mating for uh, to have uh, their young, a natural, you know, instinct in animals. So very aware of that. <clears throat> The uh, doing some reading, I found it very uh, interesting. Some of the things I'm reading, and, and just came across a uh, an essay uh, by Morris Walsh, and I'll probably read a little bit out of it a bit later. But Morris was a uh, those that don't know him, he was a great uh, was a Germanic scholar and scholar of medieval German. Medieval German, brilliant mind, lovely, lovely man, a very devout Buddhist, and did, uh, I think, Diganikaya or some of the translations. So he was he was adept, he was very well-versed in Pali and things. So done a lot of writing, was a close uh, member of, of the uh, a support group for the uh, community here. And uh, so the title of this particular article, because I was doing a little research in the Access uh, to Insight, very catchy title called Buddhism and Sex. So bless his heart, he kind of stepped in there. And it, 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 it's a very, I haven't finished it, but I think it's an excellent article. We'll put it on the reference uh, list to read because I think he weaves through a lot of the uh, things that we know from our uh, conditioning, from uh, a more kind of puritanical uh, conditioning in our cultures, from either religion or uh, uh, within the culture itself, and which is uh, creates a lot of confusion about uh, about sexuality and and you know what it is. And and for me, the first and foremost thing to to think about it is really that it, it sexuality is really about creating, isn't it? It's it's when two people, a, a male and female, come together, uh, certainly to uh, create or have children. So a very natural instinct. And I think that's the operative word because it can get so distorted, blown out of proportion by our own uh, misconception, our own uh, history, like myself and other e history that each of us brings to this subject matter. So it can easily get uh, distorted, convoluted, and, and so on. But I think both, uh, you know, it's natural and also the operative word is, think, is, is love, respect, uh, care, uh, fidelity, these positive words about what it means to be in a relationship, whatever the relationship is, the, the, the operative word being love and care and kindness and respect and uh, not any of those things that are, that are opposite. When... Uh, in 1979, when I traveled with uh, Lumpur to this this country and to America, uh, I was a, his attendant and uh, primary translator. Did most of the translating, but you know, Ajahn Sumedho did some. We had Paul Brider when we were in the States, and uh, was uh, was uh, very. Paul's translation was great. His Thai speaking Thai was not very uh, clear, but his ear for Thai and his understanding were very very impressive. And uh, from the early days, so those of us always, uh, you know, benefited from that because he would hear things that I certainly didn't hear at times and I found, you know, quite grateful for that. One of the things when we came on that trip in 1979 was his emphasis on the five precepts. And uh, for a translator, I was the ripe age of 31. Uh, at the time, so let's just say that my perspective on things was not quite the same as his. And sometimes his translation or his what he would say in Thai, uh, it was almost impossible. I know Lumpasumato struggled with this as well, <laughs> but to to actually because he could be so kind of direct, and it kind of uh, would leave you um, in this uh, bit of vacuum. You want to be true to the teacher, the master, what he said, but here's an audience that he doesn't know, and I do, and how do you kind of like bring this particular thing across? It's not quite as a spear thrown at everybody 
um, or could feel like that. So, of course, one's own confidence in it and things could play, play into that in a significant way. And I remember at IMS, we were there. <clears throat> and it's still on, in fact, you can find these tapes, so I haven't gone back and listened, which I would like to at some point, because I remember this one day, it was a Sunday, there were probably 80 to 100 people there, certainly you know, a, a large amount. So he came to the third precept, and he kind of started hammering a little bit uh, on it, because his certainly his impression, and I don't think an inaccurate one, was that you know basically we're, we were you know promiscuous and quite um, you know had not a lot of uh, sense restraint and kind of free expression. So he got a he got a sense of that. And so in the third precept, I don't remember his exact words, but he was saying things that I found it extremely difficult to translate the way he was putting, you know, to do a direct translation. Now, that was me, you know, any other uh, monk could, you know, maybe just, you know, do that. And so I don't remember how it came out. I know I struggled. I certainly felt self-conscious. Maybe it came out all right in the end, but um, I don't think I was red, <laughs> but, but I was struggling. And I think he knew that, but he was uh, his his point. He saw the importance of the precepts, and not just the third precept, but all of them, and saw that people were were sincere in dhamma practice, but they were not really grasping the the extent of what it meant to keep precepts, uh, to uh, have that as a, a foundation in their lives of practice. So he was very uh, you know adamant with that or about that. So we were at the, we, we, we came here first for, I don't know, maybe a, a week or two. Well, it wasn't that long, and they were moving into Chitters at the time, then we went on to, to America, and then they made, in, the, in that time frame, they moved from uh, Haverstock Hill to Chithurst. And uh, Buddha Comes to Sussex, some of you may have seen that. You can probably find it on YouTube. Great film, and uh, he's in it, and many others uh, at that time. But when we got to America, you know, it was a, it was different. He sensed it was different. And Jack, we went to an Insight Meditation Society that he was invited by Jack Cornfield. So they, they led a retreat in Ajahn Chah's name. But Jack and uh, Jacqueline, a woman named Jacqueline Schwartz, was actually leading the retreat. So he would t come and give talks in the evening, and I think have interview periods and 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 so on. But in the trip, he was talking about. Uh, I think to me personally, I don't remember if he said it publicly. But he was talking about, well, you know, here in, in the West, people are, you know, kind of dressing down more and more, you know, meaning that they're exposing themselves and getting more, uh, his impression, promiscuous and, you know, uh, unrestrained, if you will. And he says, well, you know, they take this off and they take that off, you know, talking about taking clothes off, and then they take everything off and he says, that's it, there's nothing else to take off. More, you know, that, that's it. You know, what else, what else can you do? And he had a way of making these points. So, being the uh, young energetic monk that I was, we came to, uh, to Seattle to visit my family. And um, this, uh, uh, we had a, a ski cabinet, a ski chalet, I think of it more of as a cabin. It was quite rustic, but a beautiful place. And so we went, arrived in Seattle, and were greeted by uh, my family and some friends. And we decided we wanted to take him up to the mountains to visit a uh, beautiful place. And he was really incredibly impressed with the uh, with the mountains and things that were were there. And uh, so, having grown up around my father. And knowing some of my father's way and being a sneaky little boy or and you know a young man my father in, in his barbershop uh, part of a, a barbershop in the states he was you know gave haircuts in the old days I think in the in in those days he got like two dollars and 25 cents for a haircut kind of put some some time frame on it and the scab barbers which were non-union got a dollar 75 for a haircut so he was union 
But of course, a big thing with barbershop and a man's barbershop is they usually have the, rec the most recent Playboy in the back. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I knew this, and uh, they were around the house and things. So we were up in the mountains, and, uh, and I'm not pinning this, on, this next part on Ajahn Chah. <laughs> I take full responsibility. But he was talking about, oh, you know, they're, they're going to take everything off, and then there's total exposure. What do you do then? You know, what else do you take off? So I was curious because when I left, um, you know, Playboy wasn't that uh, graphic. Uh, and, uh, I mean, today it's, uh, you know, just kind of out of control, the, uh, the uh, amount of material and uh, pornography and uh, just uh, rampant in, in, uh, in so many ways. And the Internet is just uh, uh, wild to say the least, and I don't think there's anybody that, not intentionally, but hasn't come across a, you know, pornographic email like click here and see this, see that, see her, see him, whatever. So he was, we were at the, in our, and we were staying in the cabin next door of some friends of ours, and because my parents were staying in, in this one, and so one evening we were, uh, he, he was talking with Paul, and I was over in the other cabin, I said, oh, I wonder if dad's got any you know, Playboy's kicking around. So I started to rummage around and kind of, you know, knew where to look, and lo and behold, I, I find a, a few Playboy magazines. So I thumb through and, and look and, and realize that, well, what Ajahn Chah said is true, like they're exposing everything now. And uh, that wasn't all my curiosity, but let's leave it at that. So the next day, um, we were sitting down alone. For some reason, it was just he and I. And I says, you know, Lumpa, I said, it's, it's true. And he says, well, what? And he says, well, they're taking everything off now. <laughs> what do you mean? I says, well, they're, you know, women are taking everything off. And, well, How do you know? I says, well, I saw it in one of my dad's magazines. <laughs> and he says, I'm a bung which means, let's have a look. <laughs> and I says, you know, and I kind of like, and, and then of course, my mind is starting to do somersaults and like, oh God, what have I done? And the great master, and you know, and then, and then uh, I says, really? He says, Amma, you know, bring it here. And I didn't grab him. There was a stack, but I think I might maybe grabbed one or two. So sit down, and I just kind of sitting there, restrained young Pabakaro, great master looking at Playboy magazine, just the two of us. <laughs> so, you know, opens it. And, you know, up into. And then he, then, he, then he said one thing. He said, this is like monkeys. <laughs> and it wasn't a sexist statement about that women look like monkeys, but they were behaving like animals. That was his first impression. And he maybe looked at one or two, and then he just threw the magazine down. He says, Bye. He said, let's go. That was it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think I kind of put him away so we weren't busted. <laughs> And we walked. We had a fairly long walk. Totally silent the whole time. And you can imagine what was going through my mind. And, uh, and I had no idea. And I was, I don't think I was feeling bad. I was just like a little on edge. And, and, uh, and what have I done? And, and I don't know if, I don't know if anything was exchanged that whole time. I, I can't recollect clearly. But I know it was a beautiful day. This uh, cabin was on a, a riverbank. You know, you went, walked right down to the river and sat at the riverbank. So the, the cabin is behind you, and you've got the river flowing here. And then you look across, and there's a beautiful mountain there. So it's just a majestic kind of scene. And it was a beautiful day. You know, it could be rainy like here, or it could be nice. It was probably May, late May maybe, coming into June even. So we're sitting down, and, and I had things out for the meal. And um, then this van pulls up, and look over, and it's like, 
you know, you know, who is that? And so I see these people, and I didn't know they were coming either, but they knew where to go. So it was about a half a dozen at the most, maybe four or five people coming from, from the city that had been to his talk the evening before or two nights before, whatever it was, and they came up and they were bringing food. And uh, he said, who is it? And I said, oh, I think it's some of the people from talk. They've come to, you know, offer Donna and stuff. And, and I don't know how the next bit unfolded. But he might have said this first. Or he may have said, said it on the way back. I think it was all when we were sitting there. And he looks at me and he said, you know, I was really disgusted with that magazine. It was very disappointing. It was, um, I felt sorry for the young women that were in it. Uh, and he said, I was really ready to go back to Thailand. And then these people show up, these Western people, you know, the ones with but little dust in their eyes, if you will. And he looks at me and I look at him and we just started laughing. I mean, like a gut laugh. And it, it was just so spontaneous. And so here I am with the great master I've just exposed to Playboy magazine, ready to go back to Thailand in disgust. Some people show up with food that are sincere and obviously devout to have him there and grateful for him to there. And we just are we just having a belly laugh. And it was just it was totally spontaneous. And so this all kind of melted into this moment of of uh, uh, profundity, really, in in what was there, what he saw and experienced. And then and I was almost like a Buddha moment. Well, you know, there's a lot of delusion here. I think I'm going to go back home. It's not worth the effort. But yet it is worth the effort because there's people there that are sincere and, and interested. So regarding what I've you know read on the, uh, the third precept and tying it into the keeping of and the hiriotapa that we've been talking about, What's very uh, interesting, to say the least, about the precept and, and talking with Ajahn Amaro, that I that there's nowhere in, in Buddhist text or history that uh, can find, and as I said, I just learned this from, from Ajahn, that has anything about uh, uh, polygamy, multiple partners, or anything of the sort. And Morris writes in there about where well, the Buddha had his uh, consorts, had his uh, concubines, uh, kings did in those days. And so there's never really any comment, uh, it seems, on, on uh, that that's right or wrong. And, and Morris does a really good job at unpacking and saying that this is a, a natural expression and there's nothing in, in Buddhist uh, text or even from the Buddha that says, well, you know, sex is bad or wrong. And so my own kind of conditioning around that could see this strong conditioning around sexuality and how it's been so informed. Obviously, the, you know, the interruption of, of my childhood is, is significant for sure. But how in, with conditioning and how we're taught and what our parents teach us can be incredibly distorted, can it? get kind of blown uh, out of proportion in a way that's very hard, very confusing. And yet, in this, in this precept, in this, this training, it's, it's very clear, and I think I'll pick up Morris's thing here, because it really expresses it. And this is about 20 pages, so it's, it's, and I haven't finished it, but this is just, it's about probably half a dozen paragraphs or so, and I think it's a very... Uh, worth a read and help put in perspective and, and further comment. So he has, there's different, he talks about the bhikkhu and the, or the uh, monastic, committed monastic and celibacy, and that's all very clear. Uh, then he says there's two parts, going to read all of one, which is not very long, and then the other. That. So the first is ancient India. Before turning to our main theme, it is as well to have some idea of the sexual mores of the ancient of ancient India in the Buddhist time. Gotam himself, as a prince, was brought up surrounded by concubines and dancing girls as a matter of course. Polygamy was common. Ambapali, the courtesan from whom the Buddha accepted gifts, was a person of some consequence. It was not expected that young men would lead a life of much restraint. 
and the Buddha, with his profound understanding of human nature, knew well what demands to make of people in this respect. Thus we find the following formulation of what a man should avoid. And the other interesting part is, the, is that a lot of this is about men. And can make of that what you will, but it certainly seems that as men, and I'm not you know, discarding women, but that men are seem to be the ones that that cheat, that lie, that do you know more, and not that, that that doesn't happen with women as well, but it's just kind of rampant throughout you know history that uh, men are these kind of um, uh, really uh, unskillful and uh, transgressing a lot of the uh, of what this is about. So, uh, but anyway, in this context, it's it's talking about you know men. So. Uh, he avoids unlawful sexual intercourse, strains from it. And we can bring this up in your own mind, what modern time is. He has no intercourse with girls who are still under the protection of father, mother, brother, sister, or relative, nor with married women, nor female convicts, nor lastly with betrothed girls. So the, 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 it's set up in a way that it's really about power, isn't it? That if it's exploitive and taking advantage of, because all these are about people who are in protection of parents, so we could say under age, uh, non-consulting adults, uh, or if it's manipulative, uh, if you're in any kind of power position, whether you're a therapist, a, uh, a teacher, myself, a, a, a bhikkhu, or you know any position of power, uh, it's very clear that it's exploitive and it's inappropriate. So, he said, the lay Buddhist then, the third of the five precepts undertaken by lay Buddhists runs Kame Sumi Chachara, Veramanesi Kapadang Samadhiyami. I undertake the course of training and refraining from wrongdoing in respect of sensuality. So, Gama is really sensuality. So, Gama Dunha is sense, sense uh, desire. So, it really covers the whole gamut, but in all the, the, the uh, unpacking or the, the uh, what, what the Buddha taught, he talks about the about sexuality, uh, as, uh, as uh, more specifically. So some lay people who, usually for a specific period, undertake more than the usual five precepts, take this one in the stricter form, a brahmacharya, which commits them for a duration of undertaking to observe the same restraint as the monks. With these two, we are not further concerned, as their position is now obvious. So for the average lay person, the third precept is on exactly the same footing as the other four. There is, in the Buddhist view, nothing uniquely wicked about sexual offenses or failings. Those inclined to develop a guilt complex about their sex life should realize that this failure in this respect is neither more nor, on the other hand, less serious than failure to live up to any other precept. In point in fact, the most difficult precept for, for all, uh, of all for nearly everybody to live up to is the fourth. So to refrain from all forms of wrong speech, which often includes uncharitable comments and other people's re real or alleged sexual failings. So what precisely is the third precept imply for the ordinary Buddhist? Firstly, it is, is, uh, is common with the other precepts in the rule of training. It is not a commandment from God, the Buddha, or anyone, or anyone else saying, thou shalt not. There is no commandments in Buddhism. It is an undertaking by you to yourself to do your best to observe a certain type of restraint because you understand that this is a good thing to do. This must be clearly understood. If you don't think it is a good thing to do, you should not undertake it. If you do think it is a good thing to do, but doubt your ability to keep it, you should do your best and probably you can get some help and instruction to make it easier. If you feel it is a good thing to attempt to tread the Buddhist path, you may undertake this and other precepts with sincerity in this spirit. So I find it's, it's beautiful how a man of another generation, you know, even older than Lumpa Sumedho's generation, is very generous in, in, his, uh, in his comments. And so for me, it's like extracted all this kind of neuroses and, and things around uh, sexuality and expression when sexuality. And I found that very, very uh, helpful and uh, reassuring in many ways. B. 
because the reality is is that we are sexual beings. We express and choose to express our sexuality with with each other, same sex, other sex. It doesn't really matter that, and but how we express it in the context of it is 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 what's important. So we come to the precept itself in our uh, in in our intention, and then how it manifests by body and how it manifests by speech. And maybe the most significant thing I see in this is, like I said, as a as as a monk when I first started, that don't ask me as a celibate monk and you as a layperson how you should lead your sex life. That's you know that's not my. I can give you some guidelines, and it reinforces what I always felt that this precepts about full responsibility. You know my responsibility for first and foremost for my own self-respect right because we can compromise ourselves in many ways and not necessarily feel good about how we might express as what we've done and so on and so there's there's the opportunity to understand this energy more deeply and so there's no judgment on its expression or its manifestation quite the opposite uh, but there's cause and effect so by the Buddha not commenting on, on these these other things, uh, I think Ajahn Amaro's words with it's 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 noticeably missing, and so with the noticeably missing, to me that's like that's very profound because it really comes back to you and I, doesn't it? So I'm not even the Buddha is not going to say thou shalt not or do this and don't do that. He gives some very, you know, fairly uh, good guidelines. And then the rest is up to you and I. Now, for me, I find that's that that's that's uplifting because I can't look to somebody else. I have to turn into my own heart, otapa, and be fully responsible for how I manifest this in my life. Now I don't know how that strikes you, or or how how it is for you, but I find that it it's very profound in that it 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 opens you know a pathway to step into and be fully responsible for what this is. Another funny story, Legend Cha. Young, I think she was she was either New Zealand or Australian, maybe New Zealander. Young woman showed up at the monastery in Kosovo. The days like Ajahn Amaro was, was kind of the hippie trail. People were on the road, India, going around visiting gurus and teachers, and in, in search of of awakening of enlightenment. So this young woman, nice young woman, probably twenties, I don't really remember, but she showed up alone, you know, in her backpack and everything, and and. Uh, you know, for, for Thai people, it's like, oh, if a woman's alone, that's really, that's quite significant. How oh, you're traveling alone, how brave, you know, to go off and you know, travel the world, no man in your life and all this. So they were like singing her praises. And uh, so she went over to, to, to stay with the nuns. And, you know, Ajahn Chah welcomed her and uh, women were welcome to stay there. It was very different than for the men, but they had a you know, wonderful support over there and, and uh uh, so, turns out, three, four days, whatever it was, turns out she's pregnant. So, you know, the word gets out. And so, of course, it kind of changed the perception that she was kind of independent and, you know, on the hippie trail alone and, and, and what have you. So, I don't remember exactly how it he said it, but these things had come out, and this is a very, very, uh, very Ajahn <laughs> Chah. And... And he says, Rujak Dekhao, my Rujak Ok. Which means they only think about what's going in, they don't think about what's coming out. <laughs> and, right. <laughs> Can't find any any fault with that. It's like absolutely true. And and if we think of our own lives, it's humorous, isn't it? Because often, if that's the 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 uh, you know the spontaneity of the moment, we're not thinking of consequences particularly. We're thinking of our own pleasure, 
uh, of our own uh, uh, kind of uh, caught up in the moment, which passion is. It's very powerful. You're aroused. You're intoxicated, isn't it? It's very intoxicating. But yet here he's he's saying something that that you're kind of not seeing the whole picture, and there is a bigger picture here. So it's important again to reemphasize that um, you know I don't intend any any judgment, any kind of uh, uh, on anybody uh, uh, regarding this because it is a very personal a personal matter. But certainly our bodies, uh, for all practical purposes, are our uh, safe zone, how we use our bodies, how we choose to use them, and how we choose and give permission for others to share that with is, is, a, is an important responsibility. Maybe the last thing, and I've said this before, it's very sweet. Um, we were up at... Uh, this was just before he got sick, so we were up at Tumsang Pet, this cave of the Diamond Light Monastery. And um, it was the evening, and it was very beautiful up there. You could see the stars. And, you know, it was just, just you were like on top of, of uh, and a bit like Australia when we went there last year. It was very, uh, uh, just a beautiful breeze. It was cool once the sun had gone down, although the, the, the stone would hold the, um, the heat of the day. So we were sitting, it was, it was Ajahn Chah, maybe one uh, an American or a, a, a Western novice. I think one other Thai monk, and it was just four or five of us, just monks sitting. And uh, he had a drink that we'd, we discovered Coffee Mate, and we could have chocolate. Coffee Mate had nothing that was not allowable. We could have sugar and uh, discovered Coffee Mate, and we had cocoa powder, which was allowed. So they would mix a, a nice hot drink of, of uh, uh, powdered chocolate, sweet, uh, with water, uh, sugar to sweeten it up. And the coffee mate made it nice, you know, very flavorful. So he couldn't say coffee mate, so he called it a communist. <laughs> so we're sitting and he, sa he says, he says, you know, to the novice, he says, Make me a communist. <laughs> Goes off and got the kettle boiling and mixes up this drink. And so we're sitting, and th these are some of the most precious times. Uh, you know, S Steve remembers them. Ajahn Amaro had a few, but just it's it just priceless. Just uh, to think about it, I'll have tears in my eyes that I had the honor and privilege to be in this kind of situation with him, and just and the travel and everything. Uh, kind of mind blowing. Anyway. So we're sitting, he's drinking his communists, and it was common to go up and, you know, knead his, his legs and feet. It was, it was part of our tradition, part of what you did to, to care for the teacher. So he's drinking it and sitting there and just kind of sitting there with him. And it's just, it's, it's, it's just this, you're there, you don't have to be anywhere else, and whatever is next is next, but just to be with him and, and in his presence was, was magic. And then he says, uh, turns to me, he says, Sabai no Pabakaro. You know, we're, it's, it's great, is it? Sabai is this word that includes everything that's kind of for contentment, for happiness, and uh, to, to be just, and, uh, and it was. I mean, it was like perfect, you know, the air, the weather, and everything. And he says, Kap Lung Pong, you know. Yes, I agree. Kat Yang Dio. He says, one thing missing. So I took the bait. So I, Kat Yang Lo Pu Ying, he says, women. <laughs> Directed at me. <laughs> so these are the kind of things that, it, that, that, that his perception would have. And of course, he didn't, you know, he meant it in a way, if you, if you think about it, that, you know, that would be, in some perception or perspective, would be, you know, to have women there with us, you know, to share and whatever. But it would totally, totally change the dynamic, and that would be very different, wouldn't it? All of a sudden, you know, the monks have the women in the monastery, which probably happens all the time in, in different situations. 
so it was it was it was profound in the sense that um he uh, how he could be and just being perceptive about you know everything is it's great and grand but you know, kind of one thing missing and but if they had that thing then it wouldn't quite be you know as as uh, much contentment there certainly for for the life that we had chosen so i hope that I, i've uh, you know offered and given some uh, perspective uh, on this uh, third precept uh, and uh, in its uh, kind of you know context and you know what it means uh, how uh, we're encouraged to uh, to practice it to keep it and uh, so I think tonight's talk and then tomorrow night we're on speech maybe the fifth precept will be you know about uh, drug and drink that leads to heedlessness but I kind of thought well tonight's talk and then the talk about uh, speech are probably two kind of the pinnacle of our of our precepts but I love what Morris said how he put it is that there's no different in breaking and and just to reiterate for me it really it really helped me kind of get perspective on my life in many ways and as you know, chatting with Ajahnamuro and see that the Christian influence that I have in my life and the Catholic influence, and this is no diss on any, you know, Catholic, practicing Catholic, uh, recovering Catholic, whatever you might be, but there is a certain distortion there and not a particularly healthy uh, relationship. And Morris talks about the, you know, kind of the puritanical view and the, uh, uh, the uh, promiscuous or uh, the, the opposite, and that really um, it's, it's, it is finding our way, and well, how do we express that, how we choose to express it, and in our daily lives, how much is, is, revolves around our sexuality, being attractive, wanting to be attractive, or wanting to attract, or you know, that kind of push and pull that we constantly uh, feel because genuinely we do want to be uh, have meaning in, in a relationship, in, in, uh, whether that's to want to have family or to, uh, to just uh, have someone to, to be with and share your life. Uh, there's absolutely no judgment uh, on that at all. And um, it's what I've chosen in, in, in my life. And, but those of you that have also been married or maybe married and divorced and things that uh, relationship is not that at all. Uh, from from one from from an outsider's view, it's easy to see it as like, well, we seem to have a perfect relationship and get along, work things out. They seem to always be smiling and, and what have you. And so some people are, you know, very good at relationships. Some people maybe not so good. And but those I think that have the staying power work things out. They are able to to uh, talk and and share in a way that uh, goes beyond, say, just. Uh, youth and sexual attraction, uh, and because that wanes, as we all know, as you get as you get older, and uh, that uh, it's. Uh, I worked with a a man one time, and he talked about a relationship. A psychotherapist was actually a psychiatrist, and he talked about a relationship in a very beautiful way. He says relationships kind of like the spokes on a wheel, and he says with a, for a wheel to be strong. It has to have all these different spokes. So if you just have, you know, good sex, that's like one spoke on the wheel. That wheel's going to be kind of weak, isn't it? And uh, and so you need, uh, you know, a, f a full complement of things that you know, have in common, and to make that wheel strong, so it you know it will roll and and support. So that was a nice, you know, nice analogy uh, to use. And so we each find meaning in in different ways. I have uh, complete admiration and reverence for uh, those who are committed to the to the uh, brahmacharya life of of a uh, of a monastic uh, male female uh, monastic, and uh, that uh, they're really the preservers of the dhamma, the ones who propagate. But that's not to underestimate our our importance in this, because remember that the monastic community here without her support could not survive. So that's huge, and I think it's important that we acknowledge our peace, uh, our part in it, but it's not just to, you know, give food and, you know, bring money and, you know, bow and all that. It's really that 
we uplift the community of monastics by our own dedication to practice. So there's this kind of lifting of each each other uh, that we in this in a, in a interdependent, which I think is a is a great word, community. So the Buddha talks about the Buddha Barisa, which is the fourfold assembly. So which really, in, in the simplest forms, is male and female uh, uh, monastics and female and male non-monastics. So it's you know men and women, women and men, living a life of, of, of a certain commitment, having a, a, a vision together of what uh, this is and how to support that. And then we support each other because we do need support. I've said that before and how critical it's been in my life to uh, seek support and a certain structure. Some of us want more structure, some not so much. Some of us resist structure, what have you. But there's always a choice, isn't there, uh, in, in this. And so to be a part of something like this, I think, is, a, is, is, is indeed a great, uh, great honor. One of the uh, retreatants was saying to me today that just felt uh, wonderful. Uh, honor to be a part of this, to be here, to have this opportunity, uh, and you know we're such a small group compared to everyone else out there, and what what people are doing, what they're choosing to have and and do in their lives. So it's it's unique. It's very um, beautiful. So I hope in some small way this is, uh, uh, like I said at the beginning, it's not been you know offensive or treaded on anybody's toes. Ask forgiveness once again if I have, but tried to keep it, you know, personal and hopefully uh, meaningful. There's uh, lots more stories to tell and uh, other things, so I don't want to, you know, spill it all in one evening, then you, you won't come back. You know? <laughs> so thank you very much for your attention, and I offer this for your consideration this evening. <laughs>